0: Listener
1: production. G'day, you are listening to part B of the Howie Games featuring two-time world triathlon champion Emma Carney. Don't forget, Em's Ripper book is out now, Hardwired Life, Death and Triathlon. Check it out. Alrighty, on we go. So, Em, you went on a stint where you were the dominant triathlete on the planet. I think you won 12 in a row you're winning titles here, there and everywhere. And triathlon was massive. We was starting to get a lot of TV exposure. There she is
2: going through the gateway. Emma Carney heading for yet another national title. And this has been a very comprehensive victory. Emma Carney, 1998 Australian champion.
1: Reading your book, you had problems at a couple of world championships in between there, 95 and 96. I think you had some infections as you were trying to compete, which often happens. So, So take me to... 96 a world titles in Cleveland where you come second behind Jackie Gallagher, okay? What happens to you, the person that will never get beaten, when you get beaten?
0: <laughs> um, probably the world's worst sport. I, right. um, yeah, so I got beaten, probably lost it in the last, I don't know, 500 metres, that race. Jackie Gallagher picks up the flag of Australia
2: heads for home with the world title hers for taking it's been a tremendous performance pure determination has taken her to first position
1: and her first ever world title
0: and um so
1: she ran away from you with 500 to go yeah, did
0: yeah okay about that maybe it was okay
1: okay so at that point when she starts to just get that gap that you're used to putting on people we've learnt how you view not winning. What is going through your mind at this stage when you see the the world title getting away from you in the race?
0: Um, I suppose the the biggest would be frustration and anger. I like I don't process that well, and um, you know, for all the positivity, you know, my schooling and doing well in sport taught me nothing. Ever taught me how to handle losing. But I never, ever allowed that lesson to enter my head because, no, no, I'm not going to lose. So processed that very, very badly. I crossed the line, didn't stop, kept walking, said to Dad, get my bike, get my gear out of transition. It was removed, went back to my hotel, caught the next plane out.
1: That's it, straight out.
0: Straight out. So when I – actually, I think I had to accept a medal because that I didn't take the medal home. So I won a silver medal at the World Championships and refused to take it home. <laughs> like it's really quite hardcore looking back.
1: That is. So, so how do you, like you said you're a sore loser, how do you drive, how do you draw a line between wanting to win so much that you hate losing and being what is viewed externally as a bad sport. Like if I told you a story, yeah. I was at this race and this kid came second and refused to take the medal and left, a lot of people would say, gee, she probably needs to or he probably needs to learn a bit about graciousness. Yeah. Yes or no? Or should you well, hate losing that much that that's the way you the, react? I don't mean that as a yeah, criticism. Yeah. It's just a, a, an observation.
0: Um, it really it, it is bad sportsmanship and it is something that is not accepted and not really acceptable, like um, I received a reprimand from the sport. Yep. Um, like recently in the Tour de France, um, Cavendish had an open argument with his bike mechanic. Yeah, I saw that. And everyone was like, oh, should he really be like that? Now, I would do that because if my bike is not right, fix it, I've got a race on it, this is the only way I'm going to win. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of stuff, but he's been known to sort of blow up yeah blow blow up like that i would blow up in the background so i didn't say anything i didn't it was it was my actions so you know quite often your actions are are louder than words and um i didn't go to the presentation i was on a flight i was halfway across the pacific (laughs) that night so it's yeah, it's got to the stage where, um, you know, on the other end of it, athletes say, oh, yeah, you know, I had fun out there and, and they finished 20th. It's like, really? Is that after fun? <laughs> you know, it's, it's that sort of stuff.
1: It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating discussion. Can I, hmm. can I sidetrack you for a sec? I, I, I've, I've brought this up before on the podcast briefly and a lot of school teachers got in touch with me and said, it's not the job of the school. So I don't know the right or the wrong way for the education system and I would never say oh, I did, M. But my kids are growing up in an environment where... Let be careful the way you say this because you don't want to upset people because every teacher and every education system is doing the best they can. So I should preface it by saying that. So I'm making a lot of excuses before I say to you what I'm going to say. Uh, my kids in 2021 are growing up in a school system at the moment where everybody gets a medal, where at footy in under 10s, you're not allowed to keep the score. The kids know who wins and lose. There's no scoreboards. There's a lot of fantastic stuff in the education system about how to treat people and how to look after people and how to respect feelings. And there's a lot of discussions about resilience but for me, where I sit as a parent, I don't see them getting the great opportunity to learn what resilience is. They hear about it, but you never lose a race, or you never get told you've done something the wrong way, or your schoolwork is never not up to scratch. It's just, well, you know, well done. Where do you sit on this very divisive debate?
0: Do you understand where I'm coming from? Yeah, exactly. I do completely. And um, I quite often, I do a lot of work with World Triathlon and World Triathlon Development, and we were writing some programs for youth and junior triathletes, and they were talking about, um, you know, how do you handle a a young adult or, sorry, a young triathlete that Mm. behaves and wants to win all the time. And I said, well, why is that a problem? If we're, the, if we're the, national, the international federation, I said, I know from the age of six I was already being told to specialise because I was showing that winning meant everything to me. Mm. I wasn't told that was wrong. I wasn't told that that needed to be toned down. And, sure, when I did become a world-class athlete, I, um, I had periods where I didn't handle losing well, But I've won more races than anyone in the history of the sport. And it's like, you know, PE these days, it rains. Jack said, Jack comes home from school and says, oh, it rained, so we didn't do PE. And I said, Jack, you know my response to that. And he goes, yeah, we're all waterproof. We're not sugar cubes. We don't melt in the rain. (laughs) And so Jack and I will go and do something in the rain. Yeah. Just in case he forgets how to do it. You know, all our holidays are camping and stuff like that. It's. I think it's really the kids know who wins and loses Mm. and I think the real problem and the way to to really manage this is to have a better emphasis on physical literacy in primary schools. So then we have a younger group of Australians who have a better physical literacy so when they are involved in organised sport, which they do as they progress through school, They have that better base skill and they do know what they are good at and what they like and what they don't like. And even the students that are so untalented, they'll never win anything, will be better off because they've got their basic physical literacy.
1: Yep. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. I, 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 I understand the everyone has a crack and I get that and I love that. Well, you're the athlete, but for me as a parent, it feels like I completely get give everybody a go, and I'm I'm yeah. big on that. But I think we might have gone too far the other way. Yeah, we
0: definitely have. And you've you've also, I mean, it's also it's permeated into high performance sport. Has it? Yeah, it's absolutely. It's it's ruining high performance sport in Australia. That's bizarre. Because you'll have you'll have situations. Well, you'll have situations where someone will come 20th in a triathlon now and they'll be interviewed and they say, Oh, yeah, it was a really fun race. How is coming 20th for your country
1: <laughs> mm.
0: in any way fun? That's a disaster. If you're putting on your country's colours and you're racing for your country, don't be so selfish that you think you're going to have fun. Like, that's my attitude. If you're an elite athlete, now, yeah. if you're doing it as an age grouper, yeah. God, have fun. Yeah, you're get... trying to do a job, you're not, you're not relying on taxpayers' money.
2: Yeah. Welcome to Perth, Australia, for the grand finale of the ITU triathlon season and the ninth world championship to be contested for the Olympic program's newest and most exciting sport. Australia has become the sport's spiritual home, and in the women's race, local support is divided between the country's three past world champions, Michaeli Jones and Jackie Gallagher, and perhaps the world's foremost triathlete on current form, Emma Carney.
1: You get to another world championship where you win your second world title and I love watching that and I was watching it with my kids and and it was Jackie Gallagher again and you, you guys were running head to head.
2: The world champion of 94 is up against the world champion of 96. Emma Carney and Jackie Gallagher battling it out stride for stride. We can confirm that Michaela Jones is
1: struggling to keep up with this pace. The question is, which one will go first, or will they take it all the way to the line? Yeah, I think you'd done your 5Ks at that point, three and a half minutes, and my daughter was listening to that. She's going, well, because she loves to run.
2: Once again, Emma Carney tries to pull away, and Jackie Gallagher, for the first time, finds it difficult to respond. This could be the world title for Carney. Gallagher must really dig in deep now.
1: She's... Yeah. So a second world title. But
2: Carney is pushing clear. Gallagher can now no longer respond. The Australians are willing her on. She will claim the world and the World Cup title for 1997. And for the first time in its competition, Carney senses that the title is hers. She salutes the crowd. Her first world championship victory in 94 and her second in 1997. In front of a jubilant crowd, some 80,000 supporters have wheeled her around, swim, bike, and now final run sections. And the 1997 ITU world champion is Emma Carney. An emphatic victory of sheer brilliance, the timing, absolute perfection.
0: This is a great moment for Emma Carney. She's really lived with the defeat for the last two years. And to win in front of her home crowd here in Perth in a, a world-best time of under two hours, she could hardly have hoped for more.
1: Jackie is it, does it add anything to you being a two-time <laughs> world champion or is it just, right, I want another one at this point? You, you know where I'm coming from?
0: Yeah, well, it's, no, it was good because I was being criticised, heavily criticised for um, choking at world championships because I'd won my first, lost two, and then um, this is, you know, the fourth one, still the best in the world, number one in the world. You haven't won a world title since the first attempt. What's going on? So, no, that was that was very satisfying. But again, it was relief. Um, it's not like, Ooh, you know, let's go have a party. I'm the best in the world. Um, so yeah, and then you know we had the Olympics looming and all that sort of stuff. So
1: get to the Olympics before that, as you know, I don't need to introduce this now because you've kindly kindly told me you listen to the show. My kids do ask questions. You get my 11-year-old Sky, who operates as the pickle. Are you ready?
0: Yeah. Hi, Emma Pickle here. I used to do triathlon training and I used to train in the water, in the ocean,
1: and it was super cold. And I always used to get a head freeze as soon as I went under the water. It was really annoying. Anyway, Dad was telling me that you're a two-time triathlon world champion. Wow, that's incredible. How do you deal with the cold water on the swim? (laughs) <laughs> now, this training she's doing was in uh, August and September in uh, Torquay and Barwon Heads, so she's pretty fresh at this stage.
0: How do I? Um, two swim caps.
1: Right, <laughs> two swim caps, good.
0: Yeah. You've got to have not the thin ones, the silicon swim caps. Um, I hope she's wearing a wedding. She's wearing a wedding? Yeah. Yeah. You've just, you've just got to get in there. <laughs> I, I'm not very good in the cold water, to be honest. Completely honest, it's really, really hard work. And I, what's even worse is the warming up afterwards. That mm. takes hours. Mm. You've got to have, you've got to get your wetsuit off. You've got to get yourself dry immediately, and you've got to have hot water bottles. I think. But um, cold water, I don't know. I think that's why the the really good cold water swimmers are big people.
1: Yes, which my daughter's not. Um the the Olympics. In Sydney, it was announced that triathlon was going to be an Olympic event Um, and we discussed this via email as well and you've dedicated a portion of your book to it written by somebody else. Um, So we don't need to go into it but there was all sorts of selection situations that I've, you know, reading it, I, I don't understand how you weren't selected for the Olympics. I'm biased. I've read your book. I'm doing a podcast with you. Obviously, there's various points of view. Let's not go into the details of the whys and the hows. Most people thought you should have been at the Olympics. How did it feel? This is not to get beaten now. This is to not get an opportunity to compete. At a time when it's the home Olympics and triathlon was an enormous sport, you know, your, 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 your world championship in Perth, I think it was 60,000 people there watching. So it was at its peak. When you're not given the opportunity to perform, how did you mentally handle that and how did you come back from that?
0: Well, I don't think I ever ever have. It's like it's like a death. You just learn to live with it better. Wow. So it's it was so so insulting. I felt like I'd let the country down, and there are a number of um, you know, administrators that basically had it in for me, and an opportunity arose where they could rip me off, so they absolutely jumped 100 percent into that.
1: Had it in for and, you because of this take-no-prisoners attitude?
0: In a way, but they also, you know, you've got to read my book, um, on Australia employed a known pedophile as a coach and I said that wasn't on. Yep. And I was told at the time um, you won't make the Sydney Games if you refuse to play sort of thing. And, it, you know, that sort of stuff, I mean, it wouldn't stand up now. And it, at the time I was like what you've had the federal police march in here and arrest him and you want me to stay here and hold the line i had to go this was in 97 so i had to go to noosa to win the noosa triathlon that record still stands i went to sydney won the sydney world cup which is the fastest time ever raced on the sydney olympic course that they didn't then didn't select me for and then i went to the world championships to win that and they wanted me to stay back at the AIS and pretend everything was okay while this coach was being extradited back to um, the Gold Coast. Wow. So I I just said, look, this I can't do it, this is doing my head in. And um I was told off. And I just I don't know, I just didn't think Australian sport would do that or be okay with that. But Yeah, that was, you know, you read the stories now and there's, you know, you might look at one thing, one athlete having a a, a complaint or making a statement in socials and you just think, oh, I dread to know the details behind that Mm. because there's so much more and there's so much that has been absolutely silenced and shut off.
1: As we're learning now, we mentioned at the start with the swimming situations. Yeah. So I can't imagine... The person you've described that would have got onto that line in Sydney and thought, "I'm going to win this," like, did you watch the race?
0: No, I didn't. I never watched the Olympic final until Rio.
1: So this is something that you you're still not over. I can understand. Yeah, yeah, no, be. I'll
0: never be over it. No, I I, I would never. Triathlon Australia, um, one of the high performance coaches, said to me probably two years ago, "I have an unhealthy relationship with the Olympic Games." And I said, well, you should too. You're the high-performance manager. You should be obsessed and want to win it. Um, I only started watching in 2016 because, um, well, I missed the sport. It's, it's taken me that long to, to, um, to realise that I want the sport. Um, I was inducted into the World Triathlon Hall of Fame and just missed it when I saw everyone. And they asked me to to do some work with them and I just, I wanted to see what I needed to coach and I wasn't impressed with what I saw and I believe that Australia should be the best in, in the triathlon, um, in the sport of triathlon.
1: So how do you get back to compete again after <laughs> not being, like I said, to not win at your home games is something, but to not get the yeah. chance. Yeah,
0: the, the, the
1: same. How do you get past the what ifs, what I would have done, how I could have gone, would I have won, would I have done this, would I have done that? That's, that's a big mental hurdle. Yeah. It's,
0: it's something you'll never get over. You know, it's like when someone dies, you just think, oh, what could I have done to save them or what could I have done to make things better or how could I have made things work? Um, I had absolutely no chance. Because it didn't matter what they what I did, they were gonna keep me out, and I still think that remains a little bit today. Because it's like um, I don't know. It's it's like they know that I'm not gonna try and fit in, or won't be molded and modified and told what to do. But yeah, it's maybe that's also what makes sport great, though. That constant fight. Mm. So it's it's a kind of it's a bit of a life lesson as well.
1: Let's move on from the Olympics. Let's not <laughs> let's not dwell on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Two thousand and four. You're in Canada on the eighth of July. Yes,
0: big
1: day that one. Yeah. Why?
0: <laughs> um, well, we kind of have, have missed a bit because. Sydney, I should have won a trial, and I didn't. My performance had slightly gone off. I was yep. still, you know, finishing sort of top three in the world and things like that, but I wasn't as dominant, wasn't as powerful, and I had these periods of weakness. And, of course, I didn't tell anyone because that's hashtag soft. <laughs> so I just would taught myself to back off in races, and it was particularly bad in the swim because a swim triathlon, as I've already sort of said, you dive in, you sprint for 200 metres. So you massively elevate your heart rate immediately and I was having these horrible feelings of a weakness sort of flush over me like the kind of weakness where you whoa and then I just sort of back off and get through. Um, 2004 I was swimming and I was still in the mix for the um, Athens Olympics selection (laughs) believe it or not and we were over in Canada in Edmonton a couple of days before a major race and pushed off the wall, had this horrible feeling of weakness in the pool, and I thought, God, in training? Because normally it's just in races because training you do a warm-up and everything is more gradual, increasing heart rate. And then I suddenly felt my heart racing in my chest. I didn't – I thought maybe I was having a panic attack or being soft. And, um, yeah, I was, I was approaching cardiac arrest, so – that sort of explained the performance drops and um, and the whole shamozle around that then unravelled.
1: So a cardiac arrest. Um, yeah. So how fast <laughs> is your heart going at this stage?
0: Two forty eight. Two hundred and forty eight <laughs>
1: beats a minute.
0: Well, yeah. So what? When you have a heart. Yeah. Well, we all have a heart. You've either got plumbing or electrical problems. Very basic. So plumbing is like, um, you know, you need a stent or you're having a heart attack.
1: Uh-huh.
0: <clears throat> Electrical problems are at the top of our heart we have a signal. It goes through the heart, follows these pattern of cells, and the bottom of the heart receives it and the heart pumps. <clears throat> um, if for some reason this um, signal is diverted, you'll end up, You know, the bottom of the heart doesn't receive the message, so it'll go into a little bit of a spasm, like an eye spasm. And the first one is ventricular Mm -hmm. tachycardia, so the ventricles are going too fast. And then if it kicks, normally your heart can manage that for about fifteen minutes, and then it will fatigue and kick into ventricular fibrillation, where your heart is vibrating in your chest. Kicks up to like it can kick up to six hundred. It's like an eye twitch, just really, really fast. Nothing's working. Your heart is completely not working and that's sudden death and cardiac arrest and you've got like two minutes. Um, I was in VT for over an hour. <laughs> Jeez. So I was in 248 heart rate. Um, and just the whole, you know, when I wrote that section and, you know, put the diaries yeah. onto paper...
1: It's hard to read the, parts of it.
0: Yeah, the neglect, I and mean, you know, like the bus drove off. Or what are you doing, Carney? You, you know, you're not making sense. No, I'm not. I'm in Carney's <laughs>
1: So you are on the bus at this stage.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> you know, I got onto the, the bus, the team bus, and we're going back to the hotel. And you know, your your heart is like is a muscle, and so it's banging away in your chest, and it tightens like a you know if you ever have a cramp. So you're sitting on a bus. To, you have already got your shoulders rolled forward and your, your heart's sort of tightening up and it gets harder and harder to breathe. So I, I got out of the bus at the lights just to see if I could breathe better and the um, bus drove off. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm really, because I couldn't
1: This is the Australian breathe. team bus.
0: Yeah, yeah. This wow. is my national federation.
1: This is the bit that I found hard to read, to be honest. Of all the trials and tribulations, it was this bit where, where the bus drove off on you that I found really hard to read. I found it upsetting.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the coach, what, what I find absolutely amazing, the person, the head coach at that time has just been appointed by the AIS as a coaching educator. So the same people are being recycled this same culture needs mm. to just be eradicated. But that's another story. Um, yeah, the bus stopped about 50 metres up the road and the physio got out. He, I, I remember hearing him yell out, you can't just leave her. And I thought, oh, okay. I realised I was in trouble and I thought I'm going to have to make him panic because if I panic, I'm struggling to breathe, struggling to stand up, Everything's really tight, my heart is racing. It's like a real panic. Um, so yeah, fortunately I, I said, was <laughs> it was gonna save my life. Um, and you just you need to you need to get help. I'm in trouble. So he took off and I just thought, oh, I hope he's coming back. But fortunately he dropped his bag. So I just stayed there and I just thought I need to stay awake. And it was really relaxing when I shut my eyes. I need to stay awake awake um but yeah and he got a cab Cabby called an ambulance and um I was about 2k away from a cardiac hospital so yeah I was defibrillated on the spot so when um when they got me on the, the stretcher um you know they cut your t-shirt cut your bra and um <clears throat> the paramedic said oh can you feel this and I said well what are you doing and they were flicking my feet to see if I, my body is sort of shut down. And they said, okay, you can't feel it. We're going to shock you. And I thought, shock? What? And then I heard them flick a switch and then oh. they stepped back. <laughs> and I'm like, holy shit. Anyway, I was de- externally defibrillated, just fully conscious. But I was about play, to I'll say, just- <laughs> when,
1: when you watch that on the TV or the movies, the person's always unconscious. So yeah. y- if you don't mind me asking... Um, and I hope no one else has to have experienced this. What's what's the sensation? Because again, explain what because again, what my experience—you see it on TV—and the the body comes up off the the gurney, so to speak. Or what what happens in real life?
0: Yeah, that happens. <clears throat> so it was 250 joules because I looked at the reading of energy. Yeah. Yeah. My um my cardiologist can't believe it. So it was it was like. It felt like you were hit by a truck or hit by something massive, like right through the chest, and you felt yourself come off the bed and then land. Jeez. And then I just started ripping at pads. To get them off. I just get them off because I didn't know if another one was coming. So I just threw them like that and they just (laughs) stuck on whatever. And I just said, right, you all need to stop. But, you know, everything was peaceful. It had fixed it.
1: So it, it did. Was, it clicked your heart yeah, back into where it was completely. meant to be.
0: Yeah, so they must have, you know, stopped started my heart and it was absolutely it was beautiful. It was so nice. I could didn't feel where my heart was. I felt it like a little tight knot in there like you could feel it was tired um, and then they said, oh, we're just going to have to monitor your heart and I said, you just don't stick another thing on me. And they said, "No, no, we're just going to monitor your heart." And I said, "Turn that off." <laughs> huh. So the defibrillator, turn that off. Well, I don't want another dose trying. of that.
1: So, so what what happens moving forward? What what did they have? Well, before we get to what happens as far as exercise and your career at this point, like they have to put something in your heart. No, eventually.
0: Oh, eventually, yeah. So, um, yeah. So we, the, the rhythm that kills you is VF, ventricular fibrillation. Okay. So v, VT you can have as long as your heart can correct itself. And okay. they try and recreate the pathway. So they, they, they go in. And a lot of the heart things where well, you, you're conscious, you're lying on a bed. Um, and this was back in Australia. So they just, when I was in Canada, they just got me stable enough to get me mm-hmm. back to Australia. Then the diagnosis in Australia was trying to work out what was wrong with my heart. My heart fails normal tests, too big, too sloppy, too slow, um, just fails a lot of basic things. So they just have to look at the heart according to general sort of rules. Um, And a lot of, there was a little bit of um, interest emerging out of Europe on endurance, male endurance cyclists who um was showing that perhaps the right ventricle is is um has scar tissue after extreme exercise
1: so damage from training
0: yeah yeah so basically when you train you break muscle down you rest recovers strengthens and that's how you become fitter yes and if you keep breaking muscle down you know you tear a hammy or tear a calf or but you can also break down heart tissue so they think that I've created a patch of scar tissue which would flick off the the natural signal to my heart to beat, because it wasn't as flexible as the rest of the ventricle. Um, so,
1: so the, the the power and amount and intensity of the training you've done has damaged your heart in a way.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: A quick break from Emma. An episode of the show I really reckon you should check out is episode thirty-five, featuring sailor John Bertrand, a man who led Australia to one of its greatest ever sporting achievements, winning the America's Cup. It is a wonderful walk back through history. But when we did cross the line, I remember the uh, the gun, the smoke of the gun from the New York Yacht Club finishing boat going off. I don't remember the sound. <laughs> big gun, like it was a, you know, cannon. And um, the relief of, you know, that I was just overwhelming. And then excitement, but there's the relief that we we could actually go home. We, we had the job. We got the job done, you
0: know. So it's just an incredible feeling. And this sense of relief and contentment is still with me today.
1: That is the legend that is John Bertrand way back on episode 35. Let's get back to Emma. So at this point, are there conversations around saying to you, okay, you, you can't keep doing this?
0: Yeah, they said, oh, look, you know, you're going to have to de-train. I said, what the hell is that? They said, oh, that's where you stop training. I Full said, stop. What? Yeah, stop, stop training. Full and I said, okay, so, I mean, you are, it is frightening to start with, so. Yes. Um you know, and you do all these procedures and you're awake while they're doing them and you can see your heart on a, on a screen and they're trying to recreate pathways and do ablations and um, they failed with me and my heart kicked into VF. So my heart kind of got pissed off. And because it showed that it can go into VF, it um, is that unstable that it now requires a defibrillator. So I've got a defibrillator implant and, um, the device has a lead that goes into the heart and with a sensor on it and if it senses an abnormal rhythm it has various steps to either pace back or to give me a whack
1: how, how big is it
0: um oh i i could get one it's about the size of a garment or half a phone
1: okay so it's about
0: you know that sort of
1: and, and can you feel it like if you push down right, on your yeah. chest can you feel it yep. right yeah weird
0: very weird very weird very insulting Um, Why is it it insulting? Well, you were one of the fittest athletes in the world and suddenly you've got a chunk of metal keeping you safe from yourself.
1: (laughs) Okay. So the obvious question then is, you know, we've talked about how you deal when you can't compete in an Olympics. What (laughs) happens when it becomes obvious that I I presume if you continue to do what you're trying to do, you could kill yourself?
0: You could, yeah. Um, So originally my cardiologist said, look, you know, we don't think you should exercise. And I, my question was, why not? And they said, well, we think this is exercise induced. And I'm like, oh, you think, but you don't know.
1: Oh, gee. <laughs> this is sounding like a risky approach from where you're coming from.
0: Well, we all know if you tear a hammy, this, yep. is my, this is my. what I did with my cannibalists, and we wait for six weeks. We're still on the couch and we wait for six weeks. When we get off the couch in six weeks, we still got a torn hammy.
1: Yes. Because we
0: haven't worked the muscle.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I get where you're coming okay. from.
0: So I said to him, so if I've got a heart problem and you've identified that if my heart rate gets above 160, it goes into an arrhythmia. If I exercise at a rate below 150, so I've got 10 being sensible, surely I can still look after myself and tick my heart over. And he said, well, we don't know. And I said, why? And he said, because no one's tried it. And I said, well, can we try it? So my first defibrillator only lasted five years. <laughs>
1: what happened to that one?
0: <laughs> the battery got a bit flat quickly.
1: Right. I you set kept...
0: it off oh, so many times. So, so many times.
1: So what, what happens? How, how does it set off? How does it feel? Like there's, there's a story... Description about you in the Melbourne and cycling race. Oh, um,
0: yeah.
1: Where where you went a little bit. Yeah, where you (laughs) went harder than you should trying to catch a a, a bunch and it kicked in. So, what (laughs) happens? Your heart rate gets to a certain point. Yeah. And then this cuts in, does it?
0: Yeah. So, what I said to my cardiologist, they need to improve this device. And he says, he always rolls his eyes and says, Emma, it's there to save your life, not to allow you to continue to train. So I go, oh, yeah, that's right. Thanks, Prof. Um, So what the device does, it goes on numbers. So if my heart rate goes above 160, regardless of whether it's an arrhythmia or whether I'm actually accidentally going too hard, it'll correct it. So the corrections that I've had done a lot of the time, I've actually accidentally gone too hard.
1: And how does it correct it? What does it do? What does it physically do? Gives it a
0: whack. Gives it a whack. So it'll give it a shock. So the, um, do
1: you know it's come, do you feel it?
0: <laughs> yeah, I do. It's, you kind of feel weak and you go, oh, I'm such an idiot. Oh, my God. It's like a time bomb. And you look at your heart rate Jeez. and go, ooh. But, yeah, it's, um, and you normally get two because the first one won't fix it because you are actually running or riding at a level where you need a heart rate of 160. Yeah. So the heart will get a whack and carry on. So you have to pull over and your heart rate drops and you can sort of feel it. it's going to go again and sometimes you can get yourself out of it but usually you get the second whack.
1: So and people you, people will be listening to this and they will now understand how driven you are and how, I don't know if obsessive is the right word, I never used to like, like to use the word obsessive, but people listen to this and think, wow, why doesn't she just come the farm as my kids say to me? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like... I don't understand the full medical descriptions that you've had with your professor, but from what you're telling me, it sounds like you're still pushing yourself or you have pushed yourself to a point where you could risk your life for the want of exercise. Is that too dramatic an understanding or not? Like black and white?
0: Yeah, maybe. Maybe I am. But then um, I haven't set my recent one off. Well, that's good. So this is my third the second one lasts a little bit longer. So this is my third device and I got that in 2018 and I haven't set it off yet. So oh. I am learning. <laughs> but maybe I'm just so old now I don't go hard.
1: Yeah, but but when you were, do you understand what I mean? It sounds like you were taking yeah. a tremendous risk f- for the want of exercise. Yeah, but it's not it's not
0: about exercise. It's about living. That was... That was me. Like, If you say to me, okay, you can no longer exercise, well, I'm a dead person walking.
1: Yeah, I get that. I get that. I'm dead. I'm done. But you can still exercise without. Oh, yeah,
0: I do. So so my exercise, so I'll do the warm-ups with my athletes and I'll roll out with my athletes and um, I do a little bit of suffering, but I don't do the hard, intense stuff. You just can't. um, Yeah, it's. It is, it is very controlled. But originally when I first retired, um, I thought I was going easy because I had no understanding of what normal was. No. When I, when I first had the device put in, I remember my cardiologist came in and he said to me, and it's the most painful operation I've ever had, and he said to me, in two weeks you might be able to go for a swim. And I thought, I don't even know how I'll ever lift my arm again, it's so sore because you've got wires up here. And um, he said, oh, well, you know, just an easy swim. I said, well, what do you think a swim is? And he said, oh, 15 minutes. And I said, oh, I wouldn't even get wet. <laughs> and I said to him, what do you consider a run? And he said, oh, I don't know, 10 minutes. I said, what? So, like, mm. I, you know, me going for a run was like, you know, let's go for an hour. And let's
1: chuck in a bit of fartlek or some intervals and um, I don't do it like that anymore. <laughs> so how was it when you – a lot of athletes struggle when they have to retire for obvious reasons. In all sorts of sports, and I've heard that story in various guises on this podcast, how was it – and it's the ones that have had to stop when they still felt they had more to give – due to injury that they couldn't, you, you, ostensibly yours is due to injury. How did you deal with the fact that your career had come to an end or had to come to an end for your own physical well-being? Oh, it's,
0: you know, it was, it was the end of my life sort of thing. It was really probably the worst, the worst way to retire. The, you know, I had that disappointment of Sydney um, followed by this and... Um, Shortly after my heart diagnosis, my sister Jane was diagnosed with cancer and she, she died within five months. So that was the hard facts that, you know, I wasn't that poorly off. It, you know, it can get worse and, you know, I was alive and I needed to sort of try and just carry on, keep going. And how did you? Um, Funnily enough, through sport. So when Jane was really, really ill, um, I spent a lot of time looking after her. Her husband couldn't do it all on her own. She just had a little baby too. So um, Jane would give me Wednesday mornings off and Saturday mornings off. And one of the first mornings I had off, I went shopping and just a mundane, wasteful way people were wasting time did my head in and I saw someone selling daffodils for, you know, cancer research and I got into an argument about how pointless that was and I thought, well, I need to do something that I enjoy, otherwise this is going to take me as well. And um, I got my bike out and I just, I had the morning so I would ride to Portsean back, 200K. <laughs> And I thought, well, that didn't kill me. My heart can't be that bad. So I just started riding. I thought that was the the one thing that would be least dangerous for me because swimming, you have a cardiac arrest, you drown. Running elevates your heart rate more, so I'll ride my bike. So riding and I started to, you know, see people out there and catch up and the rides got a bit quicker and
1: (laughs) And away we go again. But it
0: was the only way I coped. Yeah, and I really sport will always be a part of my life, and I'll always have a heart condition, and I'll probably always be unbalanced. But that's that's me.
1: I'm really sorry to hear about what happened with your sister. It's um, very
0: yeah, very very sad. Jane, um, yeah, the fight that Jane put up to stay alive, you know, that's. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen anyone with cancer. I, I can't see how they'll ever cure that. I can't mm. see any light at the end of the tunnel with that. And we need to make sure that our lives are spent how we like spending our time.
1: I've only got a couple more questions for you, Em. There, there's so much more to read in Em's book, Hard Wired Life, Death and Triathlon, that we haven't talked about. And there's some things I, I don't feel comfortable talking about with you, so we'll leave those... <laughs> for people to read in the book, which I couldn't recommend more highly. We sort of, in a way, I asked you this question at the start, but is it, I think the term is outlier. Is it worth living life? And this is a question, not a comment. Please take this as a question, not a comment. Is it worth living life as an outlier, as someone who is continually butting their head against conventional thinking?
0: Um, for me, yes, because I wouldn't, I would hate to get to the end of my life and have not done it the way I think is right. Um, you know, like, it, well, for example, if I'd listened to Triathlon Australia at the start of my career, I would have moved up and I did, I spent a bit of time up in Queensland and, um, Sydney and, um, but I probably would never would have become a triathlete because I thought, oh, well, this is, you know, this is absurd. I can't do it from Victoria. Mm. Or, you know, from a very young age, I was never given a, a scholarship with the VIS and things like that. And I was told that, you know, I was going the wrong way about doing triathlon. So while it makes things very difficult, I think you also, if everything, if you've gone through everything, you've worked everything out, you understand and that sheer hard work you, you can achieve a lot and you're not going to always have everyone with you no one's going to share your dream well maybe a couple handful of people and um as long as you've got the passion and the commitment you'll you'll get there but it's whether it's worth Doing it the way I've done it, I don't know how to do it any other way. Mm,
1: your way your I, way, yeah,
0: I get yeah, I don't actually know. I, I, I don't know how you try and fit in. I don't understand if they're wrong.
1: So your records still stand. You'll always be a two-time triathlon world champion. You've still got the streaks that no one have beaten. You are the most dominant athlete really in the history of the sport across men's and women's competition for a period of time, how do you look back on your career? Do you look back on it happy and satisfied and fulfilled and joyous or do you not?
0: (laughs) Well, that's the other problem with living this type of life. You're never happy.
1: Well, that's hence the question.
0: Yes. Um, I mean, there's always things that I could have improved. My book has helped, to be honest. My book has helped. I've written about it and people have read it and there's a list in the back of, of my results. And, you know, on paper, it looks pretty good. But as an athlete, there's that constant problem that you have is things could always have been better. You could have always won this. You could have always done that. Um, I'm disappointed I've never got to an Olympics. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to coach and I've started up my little podium projects I'm going to coach Australian athletes to win gold. And I've actually targeted 2032 to fill a podium on the women's triathlon with Australian athletes.
1: One, two, three. And
0: yeah, I'd like to fill a podium. And it's just, it's funny how life sort of brings things. Like, suddenly that's now going to be a home games. Mm. Like how cool would that be? Yes. But I thought of that, you know, in 2016 when I watched triathlon for the first time in the Olympics. So it's, yeah, I mean I'll be forever indebted to triathlon. I'll be forever involved in triathlon, Um, probably world triathlon. I'm not sure about Triathlon Australia, but I will always coach Australian athletes to win. And, yeah, I hope, well, I mean I've got into a, I hope I'll be remembered for my positive contribution rather than um you know <laughs> my arguments.
1: Well, I think you know, that is the thing that that we need to people to understand. It is as well as being a harrowing journey at stages, it's a tremendously positive uplifting journey of someone who believed and believed and achieved, which is which is what your story is. so on the back of that M, You'll know this question is always the last question because as I said you've put some sunshine in my life by telling me you listen to the show <laughs> for all, for all the youngsters out there that are listening that want to be the world's best triathlete or the world's best guitar player or the world's best lawyer that have a desire within what advice would you give those younger ones that are looking to achieve success in their chosen field whatever that may be
0: Never let the passion die and work out what you need to
1: get to the top. it's great advice. Well, And it's actually
0: simpler than it
1: seems, I think. Em, often I come away from these podcasts thinking, oh, I got the guests through that podcast or they got me through the podcast. More often than not, it's <laughs> I got them through the podcast, but there's no doubt that you have got me through this podcast. I appreciate your honesty. The book Hardwired Life, Death and Triathlon is so much more about than just – the life of a triathlete. Congratulations on the book, and thanks for getting me through the podcast. I found it fascinating and difficult, but uplifting.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's um, it, yeah, it's, it's. I hope that I've contributed in a, in a positive way, and um, absolutely. Even, yeah, I mean, achieving is tough. Achieving is really, really hard, and achieving normally ruffles feathers. And for anyone out there who's ruffling feathers right now, you're doing a damn good job. Keep ruffling. Yeah.
1: Good on you. I look forward to seeing the podium in Brisbane. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Em. Stay safe. Thank you. Fascinating person, I reckon, is Emma. Gee, she is a driven, driven individual. Gave me a lift though to see the passion and desire she has to succeed still today. Hope you took something from the chat. Thanks to Emma for her candid approach to this episode. She did not shy away from anything. Darst knocked this one up from his home studio, didn't miss a beat. The kid world well under him. Until next Thursday with Mitch Marsh, an episode I really rate. Look after yourselves, ring your mum, give someone a hug, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try.
0: If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.